Welcome to the Mini Culture Podcast, Season 5 from KFAI Community Radio. Glass breaking and the screams and sirens. Because chairs uh, you can pick up and throw in a fight. Oh my God. And the room was wall-to-wall gay men. This was prejudiced town, St. Paul, Minneapolis. Actually, like a chamber pot. This season is all about Minnesota history. And I'm your host, Ahanti Young. We're kicking off season five during Pride Month. So let's head over to the gay bar in downtown Minneapolis, conveniently named the Gay 90s. If you've never been to the Gay 90s, you are in for a treat. Whether you are new to the 90s or a seasoned vet, there's always something to be holding, even if it's just a drink. The gay 90s hasn't always been gay. The night spot began as a supper club for a straight crowd. It opened in the 1950s, and the name was a reference to a decade, the 1890s, which inspired the brassy, old-time decor inside. Then, in 1975, the vibe changed in a big way. The owners of the gay 90s bought a disco ball. They hired DJs and they turned the 90s into a club catering to gay men. In this documentary by KFAI's Todd Melby, you'll hear the voices of some of the people who worked, danced, and connected at the gay 90s. This program contains adult situations We went there, it was a Saturday night. Patrick Scully's very first night at the Gay 90s. We didn't go through the happy hour door to get in, we went through the 90s entrance. I remember opening the door on the Hennepin, and then there was that space before you get to the next door, and then opening that next door, and looking in and thinking like, oh my God. And the room was wall-to-wall gay men. And I remember thinking to myself, these are all gay men? Oh my God, you know? In my head, I had this notion that there were maybe 20 or 100 homosexual men in Minnesota. Turns out there were a lot more than that. My life has never been the same since then. You know, to just realize that I was nowhere near as alone as I had imagined. From KFAI Minneapolis, this is Fly Robin Fly, the story of that disco craze moment when the gay 90s came out of the closet and embraced its name. I'm Todd Melby. These days, most people, even straight boys like me, Know that the gay 90s, that multi-floor maze of bars at the corner of 4th and Hennepin Avenues, is a gay bar. Well, multiple gay bars, really. There's a drag queen bar, there's a leather bar, there's a piano bar, there's a disco. But back in the mid-70s, when Patrick Scully wandered into the gay 90s and saw all those men on the dance floor, the bar was just coming into its own. You see, the gay 90s 
used to be a straight bar. All right. My name is Susie Ayers, and I grew up at the Gay 90s Bar in downtown Minneapolis. We'll return to the disco era in a bit. But first, let's learn a little history. Susie grew up at the 90s because her family owned it. My Uncle Dick, which is Richard Gold, and my Uncle Al Cohen. My uncles named it for the 1890s era. It wasn't named to be a gay bar. (laughs) Dick and Al opened the gay 90s in the mid-1950s. The 90s in the name refers to a much earlier time. And so there were 1890s automobiles hanging from the ceiling, like old buggies, carriages, and the bar was very opulent with gold posts and gold rails. I mean, it was fancy schmancy, for sure. When Susie was a kid, we're talking the 1960s and 1970s, lots of people ate dinner or Sunday brunch at the bar. In 1971, the bar's menu was heavy on the meat, veal cutlet, sirloin steak, butt steak sandwich. They were all on the menu. And in true 20th century form, the butt steak sandwich came with potatoes and coffee, all for $2.50. Susie says customers could chow while being entertained. It had a big stage because they always had um, comedians and all kinds of other entertainment. Like strippers. When the 90s turned gay, men would grind wearing next to nothing. But before that happened, women danced for men. On January 22nd, 1971, a woman named Catgirl performed before a noon hour crowd. Newspaper columnist Will Jones attended the performance, perhaps because Catgirl billed herself as America's second best exotic dancer. So Catgirl does her thing, Jones watches, and then in the next day's paper, he describes her as six feet of savage blonde beauty. Next to the gay 90s was another bar. And then on the other side of the gay 90s was a smaller bar with its own street entrance. And that was always called the happy hour. The happy hour was also owned by Susie's uncles, but it was a very different place. So the gay 90s was really kind of a nightclub. And the happy hour was a street bar. So... In the very beginning, I couldn't tell you, but it definitely became a main draw for the Twin Cities gay population. I'm Vern. The Happy Hour was the only bar in town, the only gay bar in town, when I moved up here, late mid-60s. Vern used to duck into the Happy Hour. He says the place had a split personality. During the day, the Garment District employees would come in for lunch. So it was pretty straight during the day. Then I turned gay, and on weekends you couldn't walk through the place. It was so packed. And they had a, <laughs> the men's room was right outside the, uh, the door that went into the 90s, and they always had a bouncer standing there. So if a gay guy went into the men's room when he came out, the bouncer made sure he went back into the happy hour, not into the 90s. Were, were gay men not allowed into the 90s? No. Well, if you came in the front door, you, you were all right. But they, they were worried that there was going to be some screaming queen in there or something. The cops were worried, too. 
Other patrons told me the happy hour was sometimes raided by Minneapolis police. The bartender would flash the lights on and warn people that the cops had breached the door. In those days, being gay was not as open as it is now. And a lot of them were disowned by their families. So we made ourselves into family. It can be hard to remember just how homophobic society was then. The following program is brought to you in part by General Foods Corporation and in part by the Northwestern Banks of the Twin Cities area. In the 1970s, WCCO-TV aired a news program called Moore on Sunday. It starred newsman Dave Moore. One night in 1973, the station aired this story. Good evening. Tonight on Moore on Sunday, we'll have some frank talk about a subject usually only spoken of in whispers. The subject is homosexuality. We call the segment Karen and Cindy, Jack and Jim, a different kind of love story. Homosexuals may be this country's most oppressed minority. It's illegal to be a homosexual in 43 of the United States, including Minnesota. Out of fear, they've gone into hiding. Fear of the law, fear of losing their jobs and friends. The show featured Jack Baker and Mike McConnell, a pair of Minneapolis men who found a way to get married when gay marriage was far from legal. Jack legally changed his name to Pat Lynn McConnell, a name one can interpret as either male or female. The ruse fooled authorities. Michael and Jack have pledged their faith. They have publicly declared their love. I declare that they are to live together and are now joined in marriage. Mike McConnell and Jack Baker had worked for months. Other men, like Vern, didn't bother with legalities. They met lovers and friends at the happy hour. And two years later, at the gay 90s. On September 4, 1975, the gay 90s ended its straight-laced entertainment. It dumped the exotic dancers in favor of DJs and a disco ball. But the transition wasn't as abrupt as you might imagine. For years, the 90s had hosted drag queen shows on New Year's Eve. And now, with many neighborhood movie theaters playing pornos and peep shows popping up at adult bookstores, the owners decided their bar was in need of a makeover. The reason, owner Dick Gold told a reporter, the romance of the stripper is gone. But the romance of the disco era was just beginning. Well, what do you say we take a tour of the 90s and meet some of the people who worked there when the 90s went gay? When you walked into the 90s in the mid-70s, the first person you'd meet worked at the coat check. Oh, big mama. Yes, we used to call her Big Mama. Her real name was Donna Ewing. She did an interview for an oral history project at the University of Minnesota. Andrea Jenkins, an openly trans Minneapolis City Council member, asked the questions. We are in the Augustana uh, Nursing Care Facility in Minneapolis. And um, how you doing, Donna? Not too bad. Not too bad. That's good. Donna told Councilmember Jenkins that her arrangement with the gay 90s was a good one. She kept one half of the coat check money and all of the tips. And the tips were sometimes big. 
one guy used to come in check his coat, and I never gave him a number. I put it in a certain place because he had these fur coats, you know. He threw me money. Sometimes it'd be $80 or $100 all wrapped up in $20 bills. Customers liked her, and other employees knew not to mess with her. I had a personality, and they all trusted me, you know. Right. And I was, I told any of my help, I said, if you ever take anything out of a coat pocket right. and I find out about it, I'll break your <laughs> mind. Okay. But some of them would eat pills, and they leave their wallets in their coat, and they come back at night mm-hmm. and to get their coat just for a minute to get right. some get drugs out. Yeah. out, and I'd leave them do it, you know. Mm-hmm and they give me extra money. Oh, wow. Me, I made good money there. Yeah. Good money. Donna was transgender. She identified as female. Sometimes before work, she'd engage in sex for money transactions, but her customers didn't know the full story. I'm not what you think I am. I'm, uh, and they say, you're a drag queen? I said, no, I'm a transsexual. I'm going to have surgery. And I'd show them some papers I had from the university uh-huh. saying I was going to surgery. If men wanted intercourse, she'd say she had female troubles and suggest another sexual act. That usually worked, but not always. He was a truck driver from Fargo, North Dakota. Mm-hmm. I always just friends him, you know, and he uh-huh. loved it. And he treated me real good. So one time he said... He wanted more. Donna says he was very specific. And I really wanted to, because I was, wanted to please him. So I've got to tell you something. I got a little... I, I'm a, a boy, I said, I got a little penis, but I'm having surgery. That time, Donna gave him more, and he was one happy trucker. He said, Donna, without surgery, you're a 100% woman. Mm. He said, that little you got doesn't mean nothing. He says, your actions, your characteristics, uh-huh. all you, he says, you're a 100% woman. Wow. So I thought that was the nicest compliment That's I ever got. Sweet. This is the Mini Culture Podcast on KFAI. I'm Ahanti Young. We'll get back to more history of the gay 90s in just a sec. Support for the Mini Culture Podcast on KFAI comes from Hennepin History Museum in Minneapolis. At the Hennepin History Museum, you can learn about your community through the stories of people, places, and things from our past. The museum's mission is to bring the diverse histories of Hennepin County to life and to help people understand their world through exhibits, collections, public programs, a magazine, and a research library. Learn more about member-supported Hennepin History Museum at hennepinhistory.org. And now back to Fly, Robin, Fly, the story of that disco-crazed moment when the gay 90s came out of the closet and embraced its name by Todd Melby. After making your way past Donna at the coat check, one of the first people you'd see was Renee. The hostess with the mostess, and then she ran the place. You know, she trained in all the bartenders and all the waiters, and... She looks stunning. She dressed up. She dressed to the nines every day. I mean, you wouldn't think that this was a bar or a nightclub in Minneapolis. 
she looked like she was the hostess of a club in New York or in Vegas. I mean, she was always very dressed up, lots of makeup and hair always perfectly coiffed, high heels. Cleavage? Oh, yes. Lots and lots. Renee hired a man named Mike Wysocki to work at the Gay 90s, a native of Wisconsin. He'd just returned to the Midwest from New York City, where he'd hit up gay discos with his boyfriend. He loved the club scene there, and he doubted that Minneapolis had anything to match it. What's going on? What's the scene like here? I mean, I can't even tell you the clubs I've been to in New York. I mean, they're incredible. Now, back in the Midwest, he asked a friend what, if any place, was worth checking out. His friend had an answer. And she goes, well, you know, the gay 90s is now the place. The gay 90s? You mean that, that old strip place? She goes, yes, yes, no, they, they kind of fixed it up and everybody goes there. There's lines of people waiting to get in. What I saw was it was incredibly crowded. We weren't walking in to, you know, maybe 50 or 75 people. Oh, no, no, it was, it was happening. And, and I, I just went, wow, this is, this is great. Uh, you know, I, I, maybe I, 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 I think I'd like to work here. I mean, this is, this is where the music's at, and uh, you know? That's when I asked someone who was working there if they needed any help. They said, oh, you would have to talk to Renee. Yep. That Renee. And then I said, excuse me, are, are you, are you Renee? And I said, oh, my name's Mike, Mike Wysocki. I was just wondering, I, I mean, do you need any help here? And she looks me up and down and she said, you know, it's funny. I was just thinking with business going so well, I really need to bring some good looking men in here to wait tables and, and stuff. And she said, so do you have a pair of dark pants and a red shirt? And I said, I sure do. She said, then I'll see you tomorrow at five. That was it. Mike's job interview was just one long gaze. That was my job interview. He was about to become the first man to wait tables at the gay 90s. He returned to his friend with the good news. I'm going to be the first waiter in the gay 90s. And she goes, all right, all right. The owners of the 90s didn't hide in their offices. Susie Ayers remembers Dick Gold as a dapper man. My uncle looked like he could have fit right in with Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack. He was a good-looking man and probably six feet tall, always had his hair long, manicured nails. He was fun. His brother-in-law, Al, stood out in a crowd. He was huge. He was probably 6'5", and probably weighed three-something. A lot of the time had a big beard. Before the 90s started hosting drag queen shows, contests were held at the Lemington Hotel. Big Al was there. He would dress in drag, and like I said, he was like 6'5", with the full beard, lots of black hair, and... 350 pounds, and he would have a gown made for him every year for Drag Queen Contest. Big Al was a show-off in other ways, too. He and Dick used to go out to lunch, and the check would come, and Big Al would say, do you have change for a 1000 
and he actually had like a thousand dollar bill. <laughs> so my my uncle Dick would have to pick up the check. Mike Waisaki wishes some of that money had gone to spruce up the place. It kind of always looked a little ragtag. He was making a ton of money. All he had to do was basically keep that name, fix some of the, the neon lights outside on it. He didn't even think it through. I mean, he just took the older waitresses, still wearing their white aprons and comfortable rubber shoes, and just took it that way and called it a gay bar. If you didn't want a table at the gay 90s, you could head straight for the bar. There, you'd meet Uncle Vern. You met him earlier. He was the guy who talked about what it was like to be a customer at the happy hour. I was known as Uncle Vern in the 90s. I was older than the other bartenders. I was in my late 30s, 40s. Everyone, everyone else, all the other employees were about, you know, in their 20s. So Uncle Vern was the guy you went to when your lover dumped you or if you needed a loan to pay day. It was a great place to work. But yeah, okay, I'm Uncle Vern. Yep. After drinking at the happy hour, Vern took a job as a bartender at the 90s. Oh, I was one of the first people in town to shave his head. And I had a, had a stash. I've always had a mustache. Yeah, six foot. Always wore a leather vest. That was sort of my trademark. He looked like a bald Al Pacino in Perpico. <laughs> On busy nights, customers lined up four or five deep to order drinks. Well, it could be beers, could be just like a Jack and Coke. I use my shaker a lot. Made a lot of shaker drinks. Well, we also had an ice cream machine, so we made ice cream drinks. The disco music was deafening, but that wasn't the only distraction. I worked in the second station next to the stage, which meant when we had strippers, I had male strippers sweat all over me. <laughs> they danced on the bar. What were they wearing? G-strings. Was it hard to make drinks and people would dance on the bar? Well, they knew better than to try to walk over my till or my station. Did you ever have a dancer walk over your station? Just once. They never did it again. What did you say? <laughs> I didn't say anything. <laughs> I don't know what I had in my hand at the time, but I clubbed him on the ass with it. <laughs> The point of the bar, of course, is to sell drinks. And the strippers are to bring people in to, to spend money on drinks, and if they're getting in the way of, of service, then it's a problem for them, not for me. If you get my drift. Speaking of the, of the, of the male dancers, who is the hottest dancer you ever saw? Hmm. <laughs> I was busy telling bar. I was just trying to get them to stay away from me. Those male strippers grinding at the bar didn't just attract gay men. We did attract a lot of females. To some straight women, the dancers wore the reason to step inside the 90s. I had, a, I had an arrangement with, with one of my bar backs. He was straight. And when women came in, he would take care of the women. Because uh, to me, they were, they were like a pain in the butt. They didn't belong in a gay bar. But we committed to see the strippers. So he always took care of the female in business. I took care of the male business. So I, I tipped him accordingly. In those days, a gay bar was sort of sacred. I mean, the straights just stayed out. They didn't come in. Because gays weren't welcome in a straight bar. 
So straights weren't welcome in the 90s either. I just felt like my space was being violated, my gay space, when straight women came in. Vern worked at the gay 90s for 20 years. Like in the wintertime, I started my shift at 6 o'clock. It was dark. But it was like going to a party every night. I wasn't going to work. I was going to a party. He also worked as an accountant. But the money was better at the 90s. Tips were very good. That was one of the best-paying jobs I ever had. I have a four-year degree, and I worked for Internal Revenue and Collections. I uh, worked for the state tax department in auditing, but made the best money attending bar. Yes, thank you. During those years, there's a pretty good chance that Uncle Vern sold a beer or two to one Patrick Scully. He was a customer at the 90s. We heard from him at the beginning of the program. Summertime, I'd probably be in shorts or cutoffs or maybe even like gym shorts and a tank top t-shirt or just a regular t-shirt. Wasn't the kind of thing that I remember ever like getting dressed up for. Patrick Scully is Minneapolis famous. In his younger days, he was a professional dancer. During his career, he performed all over town and won a bunch of Jerome, Bush, and McKnight grants. He might be best known as the proprietor of Patrick's Cabaret, a defunct performance space at Lake and Hiawatha. He first started going to the gay 90s in the mid-70s. It was shocking that a gay bar had a name that said gay. Like, a lot of people would come from out of town and just think, like, well, that can't possibly be a gay bar because a gay bar would never call itself the gay 90s. There was something kind of audacious about it. You might say Patrick Scully was a regular. You know, and then there was a brief period of time in the early 80s when I lived on Hennepin Avenue up above the best steakhouse. So, like, two blocks one way was the 90s, two blocks the other way was the saloon. And um, if I decided I was going to go out on a given night and go to the bar, I would have to, like, decide, well, am I going to go to the right or going to go to the left? When he exited his Hennepin Avenue loft and entered the 90s, he often watched the reigning queens of the era. Madame Cleo and Roxanne and Lady Patra. These were probably the first drag queens that I remember seeing. Turns out Patrick has a pretty good memory. Roxanne was African-American and tended to portray not sort of young pop stars, but more sort of older established voices. Lady Patra was also African-American. She was shorter, a little rounder, and um, a little sassier in a way on stage, but also kind of a good girl in her portrayal. And then the third of the African-American drag queens that I remember from that era was Cleo, Madame Cleo. Madame Cleo did a fierce Grace Jones. A couple years later, when Zoogies was open around the corner, Madame Cleo showed up in the lobby the night that Grace Jones was actually supposed to show up at Zoogies in person. And most of the straight clientele that had come in from the suburbs to see Grace Jones in person had absolutely no idea that Madame Cleo was not Grace Jones. And I remember one night the drag queens were doing the show to raise money for a chest lift for Big Mama. And, you know, it was the kind of sense of community that it was like, you know, she's always here. She's making sure nobody steals our stuff, taking care of us. And people wanted to pitch in and help out. The good times inevitably ended 
every night at closing time. Which brings us to another fixture of the 90s. And then I remember there was a guy named Cal, and Cal was the bouncer at the door. And he was very sort of matter-of-fact about it, like, okay, last call, last call. Once that song ended, like the lights went up rapidly. You know, it was like a fast fade, the full light. What a drag queen might call not a kind light. Changed the mood so that instead of it being a charming place to hang out, it was sort of harsh and unfriendly. And it's like, clearly it's time to go. Sure, it was time to go home. But Carl, he had one more thing to say. Once the last song of the night had played, he'd be like, all right, take your meat out onto the street. We're closing up. Time to go home. And so he loved to have sort of salty little phrases like that that he would like share with the crowd. It's time to go home. But before we go, let's hear one more time from Patrick Scully. And then there was what we would call the sidewalk sale, you know, because the bar closed at one o'clock, but people weren't ready to go home yet especially when it was not wintertime. But even in the wintertime, like people would then just gather on the sidewalk in front of the 90s and stay there for a long time, you know, and talking and chatting. Thanks to everyone we heard from on the program. Carl, Renee, Big Al, Donna, Councilmember Jenkins, Uncle Vern, Mike, Susie, Dick, Patrick. The music you're listening to now is from Jay Melby. It's called Yeah Baby. We also obtain music from freesound.org, including Disco Dubstep by NTTB, Disco Pop Loop by Dimzik, Disco Funky Beat by Orange Freesounds, and Disco by Exhale 303. Also, a big thank you to the Treader Collection at the University of Minnesota, Fresh Air Community Radio, KFAI. Support for this program is made possible by a grant from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Ryan Dawes was the editor. I'm Todd Milby. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Todd. If you want to hear more stories, news, and interviews from the Twin Cities LGBTQ community, check out Fresh Fruit, the nation's longest-running queer radio show. Find it on KFAI 90.3 FM or on KFAI.org. The documentary you just heard, Fly Robin Fly, the story of that disco-crazed moment when the gay 90s came out of the closet and embraced its name, was produced by Todd Melvin. In addition to writing incredibly long titles, Todd just wrote a book. A Lot Can Happen in the Middle of Nowhere, The Untold Story of the Making of Fargo. Fargo, as in the movie by the Coen brothers. You can find it at toddmelby.com backslash book. Oh, you betcha, yeah. All right, that's it. The lights are up. We see what you look like now. It's time to get out. That's the end of this episode of the Mini Culture Podcast. Support for Mini Culture on KFAI comes from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. This podcast is edited by Melissa Olson and Ryan Dawes. For the Mini Culture Podcast, I'm Ahanti Young.